Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston. Say again, please. Welcome to the Space Junk Podcast. My name is Annie Hanmer and I'm your host. And this week I spoke to David Knopf, who recently spent 537 days in Antarctica as the leader at Davis Station. David and his team didn't know when they left Australia in late 2019 that the COVID-19 pandemic would change the world and leave them isolated longer than they'd ever expected while forcing them to endure an extended stay without resupply and alone. Prior to his posting in Antarctica, David worked with the Australian Defence Force and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade focused on counterterrorism in the Middle East. He credits his experience of working in a dynamic and hostile environment as shaping his approach to leading teams in unpredictable circumstances and under constant change. Antarctica is a very useful analogue when we think about what it might be like to have lunar bases and long-term space missions. And it turns out that David is a massive space nerd. And when I reached out to him to come on the podcast and talk about his experiences, he very kindly agreed to do so. Unfortunately, due to lockdowns, we had to have our conversation over Zoom rather than over a beer in Melbourne, which I think both of us would have vastly preferred. But it turned out to be a fascinating and uplifting conversation that bridged polar medicine, penguins, homebrew, dating in Antarctica, The Bachelor, and so much more. So please, as always, forgive the slightly less than optimal audio quality. And with that, let's get into the podcast. G'day, Space Junkies. Welcome back to the Space Junk Podcast. Today, I'm sitting on my windowsill with a cup of tea, and I am chatting via Zoom to David Knopf, who's down in Melbourne, I believe. David, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, thriving. Absolutely thriving. It is week five, week six of lockdown in Sydney, and I've reached the point where I've forgotten what it was like before lockdown, and so I'm actually quite happy, which is a really nice place to be. But I believe you're also in some sort of quarantine situation in Melbourne. Is that right? That's right. So I'm on day 13 out of a 14-day quarantine, which is exciting because I get to go out and go for a test after this. So that would be my first day out since my day two test. But that was my penance for a seven-day trip to Threadbow. Um, as the, the lockdown was emerging, and I was meeting a bunch of mates from Canberra. So rolled the dice, went to Threadbow, and then you know, now it's 14 days home jail uh, after that trip so yeah the price you pay that is that is the price you pay I guess but you know I'm glad that you're um keeping keeping Melbourne safe and thank you for 
doing the right thing and all of those good things. And yeah, in Sydney, like I understand the, the boredom of being locked down and the excitement of going for a test. It's um, a couple of weeks ago, I was like, I woke up and I was like, oh, do I maybe have a slightly scratchy throat? And so uh -huh. I went and got a test because um, I just needed something to do. Yep. it was really it was great it was really nice I had some human interaction and and I obviously came back negative but um it was a fun experience nonetheless so yeah. David I should um reveal to our listeners who you are and why you're here on the podcast they're very they're a trusting bunch and they go with me on a lot of things but it probably is the moment would you like to introduce yourself uh, you've just taken a sip of tea sorry would you like to introduce yourself and um yeah, explain who you are and what you've just spent the last year-ish or more, almost two years doing. Sure. So I, I'm not an astronaut, but um, <laughs> yeah, David Knopf, I, I spent the last year and a half uh, down at Davis Station Antarctica as a station leader there. And we'd left left Australia back in October 2019 before COVID and before the world changed. And then we, we watched the world uh, grapple with the pandemic from the, the safe and isolated location of, of Antarctica. Um, but then it impacted us quite severely and we, we couldn't get home uh, as planned due to, to shipping and aviation uh, logistical problems uh, thanks to COVID. And we ended up coming home in, in April 2021, which took the overall time away from Australia to about 537 days. So it was um, uh, to make it relevant for space, it's more or less a return trip to Mars, oh. if you want. On Mars for about a day and then you turned around and came home which of course you probably wouldn't do but uh, yeah so that's that's my story and I uh, learned a lot of things about ourselves and isolation and community and everything along the way. Yeah well I'm keen to get into that um, I do think it's quite amusing that you're part of the international mail delays that occurred because of logistics you had to hang out there a bit longer waiting to be loaded onto planes um, but let's get on to that let's start with how did you come to become a station leader in Antarctica? Because it has to be one of the hardest jobs to land. And I've read your, your little bio, your CV, and I must say it is just one of the most bio, interesting bios I've read. And I run this podcast. So I would love for you to just explain a bit about sort of where you started, what your career has done, and then how you ended up in Antarctica. No worries. Well, funnily enough, one of the team actually called me out on this once is that station leader is one of the few jobs on station that actually have zero qualification requirements other than a you know, driver's license. Uh, whereas everything else on station, you need to be a doctor or a qualified chef or a mechanic or a scientist or anything like that. So it's one of the few jobs that is a generalist thing. And there's, there's no stereotype for station leaders, but I, I myself, I had a background in the ADF. I was an army officer for a couple of years and then transferred from that to foreign affairs and trade. And I did a, a range of postings around the world and, and mainly around um, the war on terrorism. So I was posted to Pakistan and then Iraq and I spent some time in Turkey and traveled around Southeast Asia and, and Europe and everything with, with work. So I had a, a range of government experience um, mm -hmm there but then also had a huge amount of travel experience in and around that so i'd been to antarctica before on a private mountaineering trip with a, a bunch of mates we chartered a yacht out of ushuaia and sailed to the antarctic peninsula for a month and hiked up mountains and and then you know snowboarded and splitboarded up and down and, and had a had a ball but that made me fall in love with antarctica as a location and it was then um and i, I my boss in Pakistan, who was the High Commissioner to Pakistan, Peter Haywood, shout out to him if he listens to your podcast. But he, he might kind of, well. Yeah. yeah Hi, Peter. He and I got chatting about it. And he'd spent some time with the Antarctic Division 
and it was from from Tasmania and and then I sort of looked at the jobs and it took a while to line up more or less like the taking a year off your life and where it fits with your career stream so when I was over in Iraq and I'd spent a year and a bit over there back and forth and I was getting pretty tired of that and decided that all right now's the time to focus on trying to get a job down in Antarctica as a station leader and, and go through the hoops to you know, pass the selection process that which was quite rigorous and, and one of the most interesting selection processes I'd seen of, of any of my previous jobs as well so that was really cool um, to get through that process and then get offered a job um, down there to, to run the station was phenomenal and then events played out that it was quite a, an interesting year as well so got to got a much longer and much more interesting experience than I'd ever signed up for. So just in terms of becoming station leader obviously that's a huge change of pace to go from terrorism work in the Middle East to say okay I'm going to go and hang out with a bunch of people in Antarctica. Were you like when you were going through the process of applying for station leader was your previous experience something that they thought would be an asset or were they looking more for your personal qualities? What, what was that experience like in terms of the interviews? I, I'm sure it's all very like top secret and they can't, you can't disclose how you, how you get the job, but I'd be really interested to know how you go about selecting a person who is capable of leading a group um, in difficult circumstances, knowing that Antarctica has got a bit of a history of people going a little bit you know, not, not necessarily um, sticking the, the course in the yeah. way that they should over winter and so on. No, and, and I don't think it is overly top secret how they select their people because the, the criteria and the requirements, which is people who can get along with everyone are adaptable are resilient and you know, a lot of buzzwords, you can't fake them. And the Antarctic yeah. Division's been selecting people to go south for a number of years and they do a pretty good job of filtering you out through their selection process. So if you could fake it for a one hour interview or, or you could put up with people you don't like for a short amount of time, their selection process would do a pretty good job of, of weeding it out to be like, yeah, you, you can't fake that. Um, you're either someone that gets along with others easily or can adapt um, and, and think not necessarily outside the box, but you're aware of, okay, it's not just about the one job I've got. It's about community and it's about you mm. know, helping the team and, and changing your, your profile of your job or any if, if it's required so there's a lot of those factors that come into it my previous work funnily enough um if you look at an antarctic station which is a lot like a small town you've got to have you know multiple generators and then accommodation buildings and shower facilities and then your store storerooms and science and all these things there was a lot of similarities to some of the forward operating bases you'd see in, in war zones um mainly, the only difference in sometimes was the color so a lot of it was still shipping containers and and everything which in the war zones are all painted you know desert um desert colors and then in, in antarctica they're bright colors so if you get lost in a blizzard you'll be able to see the the green building or the red shed or, or anything like that so there was some eerily familiar elements to it um, yeah. but a very different vibe and attitude as much um you know yeah much more collegiate and you know, happier on an Antarctic station at times than it can be in the war zones. But the community events side of things as well was something that, yeah, one of my favourite memories from Iraq was used to do um, yoga sessions once a week or something. And, and then but getting like an indirect fire alarm in the middle of yoga where you all run out and you have to put your body armour on everything and sit in the, in the bunker for a bit to wait for the alarms to go off. And then you go back into yoga, back to whale noises and zen. It was kind of those experiences and having 
that background helped in Antarctica as well, because it's very similar. You, you get so focused and so stressed about your work half the time, but you need to make sure that okay, I can switch off and go and do yoga or play pool or darts or whatever it is that you do to kind of relax and, and you know, be yourself for a bit. The moment when you were down in Antarctica, you've been leading this group through a difficult winter and then you're told, actually, you're going to have to stay for another four months. What was that moment like personally and for the group in Antarctica? Yeah, that, and that was, um, I remember that day quite vividly. And as the station leader, I was privy to the, the, the notion that that was coming. And I think a lot of expeditioners saw the writing on the wall from about April or so when the real lockdowns and, and the world was changing, you realise like, oh, I don't think they're going to be able to get us in November. But it wasn't until June that we were told formally, like, oh, actually, all right, you're not coming home in November. And so we should have only been a hundred or so days away from the first flights coming in to start the summer season. They said, yeah, that's, there's no flights and we're in between icebreakers. So we just retired one icebreaker and the new one was delayed with being built. So we won't be able to get you till early 2021. And as a leader, it changed for me in that up until that point, I was leading a group of people that kind of knew what they signed up for. And then it mm. changed to, I was now going to be leading a group of people who didn't really sign up for that challenge. Um, in the broader sense, everyone that goes to Antarctica, you know that these sort of things can happen, but it was markedly different from that point on of, okay, I'm here longer than I'm supposed to be. And there were a few issues along the way of people going, well, I'm not even supposed to be here. And you're like, well, yeah, but you are here. So I need you to still you know, do yeah. your job and, and act professionally. And, and I had up and down moments as well. So that changed for me personally, for the group, it was tough. I mean, that was longer away. It meant for a lot of us, second birthdays, a second Christmas, a second new year's people's family and friends died back home along the way, which happens every year kind of anyway, but more of that starts to happen and and there was so much uncertainty back home that that was that was tough to to kind of the first thing you, when when the world started changing with with covid the first thing you want to do is kind of get home and and see everyone and, and go i'm here for you i can look after you and much tougher for those with with kids and families and stuff back home but for us to still be stuck there and just have to watch it even longer as you knew that it was having an impact on people's mental health and well-being back home and you just can't do anything about it you're like well we're here um and in a lot of ways we were having quite a lot of fun we had a lot of freedom um we were able to do lots of stuff down there and at times compared to melbourne or, or other places around the world in hard lockdowns uh we were you know we had it much better but you don't want to rub it in too much yeah did you have any concerns about getting COVID on the base like especially you know if you've got um people coming in using the airstrip or something from other countries, they might be doing something different. Like, did you have to have protocols in place or wear masks or socially distance? We did. Um, so funnily enough, anything that came via ship, it's about a two week voyage from Hobart. So that sort of covered the quarantine there. So when the ship did eventually come, we had one day where we ran masks and stuff, but it wasn't too bad. Um, we had a we had to do a medical evacuation just before Christmas 2020 using a Chinese helicopter that met an American plane that came across from McMurdo and largely the polar medicine unit and everyone had done a lot of research and work on on counting who who'd been in and out and off the continent and it was a it's just one of those factors that massive consequence if you get it wrong but very low risk of like okay the chances of COVID actually getting to all these other stations with everyone doing because you know the, the risk I think there was from the Americans who had new people in since COVID started through mm. the 
kind of New Zealand to McMurdo link, but they'd all done like two weeks or a month or something in New Zealand in quarantine before they flew to McMurdo. So you start to go like a very low risk, but the consequences are massive. You've got one doctor. Um, we use lay surgical assist assistance on stations. There's no qualified nurses or anything. It's just a few expeditioners get trained up in Hobart beforehand. So that's the risk of it. The, the doctor could manage one critical patient, not two, not three. Right. So not four. And so you start to go, like, all right, look, we can't risk it. Um, but yeah, it, it was a concern. There was one of the Chilean bases, I think, that had COVID, but over on the Antarctic Peninsula, it's much closer to South America and much easier for them to handle. And the problem at, at Davis and, and a lot of the other Antarctic stations is you're so far away from help and there's no cavalry, there's no additional uh, facilities or doctors you can surge and, and help deal with a, a COVID outbreak or any mm. outbreak on station. What was it like being in Antarctica and seeing the news and seeing this thing, you know, rocking its way around the world? So the, the main thing was it was hard to get an understanding of, of what it was actually like back home. And we had on the stations with 24 of us down there for the winter and, mm -hmm. and from all over Australia and New Zealand, it was about five Kiwis out of the 24 and, and people lived from far reaches of Western Australia to the cities and Northern Queensland and all over. So it was really different for us to, or really difficult for us to understand which place to believe because some families and friends and stuff back in say Western Australia, they're like, well, it's really, you check in occasionally and it's not really had much of an impact. Whereas um, for myself from Melbourne and, and others, it was huge. And then I had a, uh, as a yeah, benefit of my previous career, I got friends all around the world and chatting to a friend over in Sweden and different and hearing all these different stories. It was so hard to get an understanding of like, well, which one do we believe? And what is it actually like to go down to the shops or see the streets or the cities? And that was surprising. When I got home, I was expecting to go to the shops and see, you know, four lease signs everywhere and boarded up things and, and people out of work. And there's none of it. Um, in a lot of ways, there was... Yeah, a few places that went broke, but nothing out of the ordinary of what seems to change every year anyway. So that was the biggest challenge was understanding what actually changed and what is life like back home now. Was there anything that did change that you were surprised about or that you noticed? Yeah, two, like two or three things I really noticed when I got back. Um, number one is the amount of litter around Australia and that really disappointed me. I know that was bad before I left, but just sort of noticing a lot more uh, litter around and masks and that we sort of, I, tell you, I said, I did joke to a friend that like, oh, wow, with COVID, we, uh, well, we solved terrorism. So that was good. No one talks about that anymore. So that's a win, but we gave up on the environment. Um, there's just rubbish everywhere. And it, it would appear they're like, oh yeah, no, we just stopped caring about that. You just throw your masks wherever and everything's disposable and like Uber Eats and takeaway containers, like, yeah, stuff it, whatever, get rid of keep cups, like don't bother, bother with them anymore. And they all had good reasons why we did it, but it, it, I think that's been a, a big loss and that was a change. And then um, the sheer amount of time you're forced to spend on your phone now of just, you, you go out to, when you are allowed out, you go out and then it's like, oh no, don't go and talk to humans at the bar, sit at your table, use the QR code, order your own drinks individually with your phone. So you, you go out to see your friends to not, Look at, it, look at a screen and then you're out and they're like, look at a screen, you know, use your screen the whole time. So that changed um, remarkably. And look, they're probably not earth shattering revelations to anyone, but that shocked me on return of those sort of those key things. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting point. I've noticed that I now find um, 
it's often better like socially to have a Zoom call with someone than it is even in Sydney if you're allowed to go for a walk with someone who's in your area or whatever. Like going for a walk with someone and keeping 1.5 metres distance and being masked and trying to communicate is like the worst experience in the world. So um, it's, it's interesting the way that we've changed. And I know that yeah, that environmental point is one that a lot of people are raising, um, that mm. we've we've kind of sacrificed that because we had to. But now we're thinking about what are the long-term consequences? How do we roll this thing back? How mm. do we get back on track? Okay, let's go back, dive back into Antarctica. I yep. want to talk about how do you entertain yourself through a long winter Um what was it like being part of, you said 24, was it people um, over months of darkness in a confined space where if you go outside, it might kill you? Um, yep. What what are you doing? How are you keeping that harmonious? Uh, how do you resolve conflict? What's that situation like? Yeah, and these are, of course, all the relevant things to how do you run a space station or, or a colony and everything as well. Oh, 100%. Yeah, no, my, yeah. my listeners have kind of got the gist by now that um, yeah. we don't we don't necessarily <laughs> stay on track, but it's all relevant. This is this is a problem. Okay, so because I do um, sociology of science as, as yep. my academic path, it means I spend a lot of time looking at analogues and looking at um, yep. disconnected things and then at the very end being like, oh, and it all ties in. So, yes. I should point out, yes, this is all very relevant for people who are thinking about space missions and bases. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of talk about like putting a putting a base on the moon and mm. maybe doing several, um, probably in a model similar to Antarctica, because that's something yep. that we know and love. Also, on the international legal perspective, the international law regimes that govern Antarctica and activities on celestial bodies have a lot of similarities and ways that we can draw on um, each one for the other. And um, yeah, generally there's there's a lot of relevance there from from a lot of perspectives in terms of planning that kind of activity. So yes, yeah. there we no, go. There's, sure. there's the intro I should have given. No, perfect. No, that's good. And look, so the, the main thing is with that is to keep yourselves entertained and everything is to take the most of the opportunities that you've got. I mean, if you certainly in Antarctica, you can get out and about and enjoy the wilderness and the wildlife. Around Davis, we had, you know, hundreds of square kilometers of rocky outcrop and sea ice and small little mountain mountain-ish kind of hills that we could go and climb around and, and enjoy but it wasn't always blue sky perfect weather to go and do that and I found that expeditioners who pushed for those opportunities even when it wasn't perfect or, or had to move things around to make it work um, got out and had a better and richer experience rather than oh it's not god i'd rather just i can just stay in today i can stay in my comfort zone and then get out and push it so there's that which is going out the front door is probably the best reset off an antarctic station you'll ever get to to get off station there's a great amount of huts and refuges around the aussie stations that you can go and see which i I don't think many other programs really have in the same way that we do so you can go and get a bunch of mates together load up the vehicles head out um and, you know, spend the night at a, at a hut in the middle of nowhere, just with your friends. You cook up a steak dinner, the chef will put a cheese plate together and you have a great night and you feel like you've been away. And then you, you set up, oh, the, the best thing as well down there, certainly in the winter, the, looking at the Southern Lights, the Aurora Australis. So you go out and you set up all your time-lapse cameras and your GoPros and mm. power packs with like, you know, the amount of heating required to try and keep them from auto shut off and all that. So that, it's just fascinating. And, and looking at the Southern Lights is is breathtaking so you do that but when you're stuck inside which does happen you know quite a bit using what you've got around you in your community was really important for us and we did a I think it didn't 
it was an intangible kind of win, but we ran a lot of programs to run like community college and, and learning off each other from different skill sets and different backgrounds and then um, talks and seminars on different things. So if someone had a topic to talk about, um, that was great. And they'd get up and they'd give a presentation and it gave them something else to do for the week to prepare it and put their photos together and, you know, come with the slideshow or, and, it, and if we ran out of topics, we'd just put on a Ted talk or a, a strange kind of movie and, and everything as well. And then, you know, really relevant to your team as well. We had a bit of a space club, um, where we'd get up for the launches, which were oh, on great. like 3am or whatever. And, and it did, it, it sort of brought it home a bit as well. Cause when Perseverance launched, um, and we got to see it launch. And then of course we also got to see it land. But so you're like, wow, that's how long we were away. It, it went all the way to Mars and, and everything. But that, that sort of stuff just broke up your routine. And as important as routine is in isolation, things that are outside of the routine and can stimulate you a bit more are really important too. And funnily enough, chatting to most of the expeditioners, um, they, they said before we even went down that, um, they had at one point in their life kind of considered being astronauts, but like, well, I, but in Australia, it's, you know, it's really hard or you just know that you're not going to be an astrophysicist or a, a test pilot that can go and fly a spaceship. So you go, all right, well, what's the next best thing? Like, all right, well, I'll just go and become this and I'll, I'll get myself down to Antarctica. And, and there's some, some broader similarities that I think uh, attract similar people. Definitely. The analog system like to, to look at it from the outside obviously works, right? If you're trying to do analysis and figure things out and draw, compare and contrast these things, that works. But also from a human perspective, the sort of person who's gonna be um, enthused about going and hanging out on an Antarctic base over winter is probably the sort of person who would be okay with going and hanging out on the moon or Mars. Um, yep. And that's not to be sneezed at because not everyone, and especially we've found this through lockdowns, not everyone can cope with that kind of um, isolation and knowledge that you're stuck. It's the, mm. the knowing that you haven't got another option than being where you are for that time. I think that really rocks a lot of people. And mm. maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe people who have that military background as well um, are more able to cope with it. But I know that when I've looked in the past at applying to go and work in Antarctica, which, which I've done on numerous occasions. And I'm yeah. always like, oh, I am underqualified for all of these positions. And there's like one job where like, I think it was like the, the person who washes dishes or something where I was like, maybe yeah. I could be that person, but they're very clear. They're like, no, you have to be someone who actually has a proven track record of being able to do this thing day after day and not mm. hate it. Um, yeah, there, there are some similarities there. And I know that there are people who spend their lives doing like experimenting on and studying people like yourself. Mm. Were you part of any studies while you were there? We weren't. So the Antarctic program has uh, in the past been parts of studies. I've always said as well. So while I've, since I got back, I've been doing a few um, bit of public speaking and everything, which is quite hard as well in lockdown, but the online um, yeah. talks and webinars to different groups from schools to corporate entities and that and I've felt that at some point it will be fascinating to sit down with a bunch of um, clinical psychologists or, or someone like that that would just love to hear some of the social issues that, that happened and obviously I can't go into all the details of some of that stuff but that side of it would be fascinating and myself yeah. and, and a number of experts and all of us really you'd sit there watching different things unfold around you and different dynamics and different tables of like the, you know who's on this table and then we'd break that up and 
So funny you say kitchen duty. So the Australian stations, that's just done by the community. So every 23 days or so you, you had to be kitchen um, assistant and then you'd redo the, the, the tables and see what that changed with the dynamic. And then you try and ruffle feathers and sit in someone's chair. And, and there was all those little things that just went on. And, and a lot of the, look, they never really caused any major problems, but they were always just sort of niggling things away in the background that, that over time do get to you. And it's funny you say with, as well with, selection of people that you'd almost a lot of the people down there are quite overqualified for their core job um and that comes down to it's not just good enough to have the bare minimum qualification for say a sparky or a mechanic or something but although an engineer it's like all right actually uh yes you could get by with that base level qualification but there's so many complexities and so much legacy equipment and other things down there you go oh we do need someone that's quite overqualified so you core job can get pretty boring pretty quick. Um, so then it comes down to those other elements of like, all right, are they someone that has a sense of community and an interest in, in all these other things outside of that? And we'd often talk about like, oh, well, if you had to pick between two expeditioners that were sort of one was overqualified, but a bit of a tool versus someone who's <laughs> underqualified, but like a really nice person, you take the nice person any day of the week because yeah. after a year, that's what's going to cause problems. Um, so that that's a fascinating element of it. And I think looking at the space missions, so, you know, at the moment, and for the history of space as it's been, it's always been like really high-performing NASA astronauts and, and all that. And you know, they'll, they're like you know, some of the guys up there, you know, they're like they've been a Navy SEAL and a doctor and an engineer and stuff. You're like, all right, well, it's pretty unrealistic for the average person. But at a point in the next few years. Um, as they start sending missions to, to moon bases and, and others, it'll dilute a bit and you will need people that have more average skills, that kind of like the Armageddon scenario of like, well, actually it's easier to train miners to be astronauts than astronauts to be miners. So not saying that movie's one to aspire to, to look at how the future of space exploration work, but it'll happen. It's pretty it'll, great. It's a good yeah. movie. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard a rumor that, that NASA make uh, aspiring astronauts watch it and have to pick up the like 195 errors um, <laughs> within it or that, something like that, which, which makes sense. But anyway. Fair enough. So what sort of um, skills did you have on the base? And I know you can't go into details, but I'd love to hear the sorts of conflicts that arose, um, whether it was, you know, people sitting in other people's chairs or whatever else. I've, I've heard great tales in my own research about um, like Soviets, Soviet expedition is coming to blows over chess games and all sorts yeah. of things like that. So I understand it can be a fairly, uh, what they call on married at first sight, a pressure cooker situation. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, I mean, like, I guess I'm asking you to reflect on both of those things there. What are the kind of beautiful moments of, I don't know, people getting together and having a jam or something. And then what are the moments where you have people having a conflict over something where you're like, really? Like, why are you having this conflict? Yeah, well, I mean, some of my two best moments or three best moments, there was, we ran two art shows. So there was oh. a, a, an amazing amount of depth in the skill sets of, of the expedition crew that, you know, they might have been down there in one role, but they were secretly like an amazing artist. And that's from from musical side of things. We, we had uh, some band nights and live music at different occasions uh, to creative art, whereas, you know, there's a lot of links between Tasmania and and, um, and the Antarctic program and stuff. So we kind of created a Mona-esque style thing and 
Um, and that was that was great to, to sort of serve you know, hors d'oeuvres and champagne and, and open an art show and, and have the violin and piano and all that sort of stuff. And the, the stuff that people made was so creative and, and it even had the summer art show even had like a kind of a video piece that someone had been involved in producing this theater piece and they'd put that on the big screen and it had all these different vibes. So those memories were phenomenal because they were so far away from our other personalities and our core role. And that was, that was a hoot. And the other one we had was um, when we have the social committee meetings, which didn't always work, but you know, that we'd, we'd you'd have them. And um it was getting towards Cinco de Mayo and then May the 4th Be With You, the Star Wars things. We're like, let's put them together. So we ran an event called Cinco de Mayo, the 4th Be With You, which was a Star Wars themed Mexican Cinco de Mayo party. And just seeing people turn up as like Mexican Han Solo and we had a Death Star pinata and, and it was so stupid, but so amazing and such a great memory that that was those moments I felt are the ones that you remember. Um, but at the other end of that spectrum, yeah, I, I had to, to mediate um, a few few disputes over some pretty petty things that you look back and you go, geez, that's um, you know, not your finest moment. And, and you kind of go, how did that get to the station leader's office that we were in there talking about something pretty menial? Um, but it doesn't mean it at the time it wasn't important. And, and you, you really just have to hear both sides of that story and help the two of them get to a point of understanding. Okay, I see it from your point of view, see it from your point of view, and then let's find the compromise in the middle or just, just have to go, you know what? I see both your points of view, but unfortunately for you, no, yes, for you, that's that's the way it's going to be. And and then give them an opportunity of like, okay, if you really feel strongly, we can get that changed or, or get the, the layout of the building redesigned or whatever it is, but we can't do that right here, right now. We have to go with this particular outcome. So those, those moments are the, at the other end of that spectrum. The story you mentioned, I think before there was a, a story at a Russian station once where a guy got stabbed, I believe, over revealing the ending of a book. Um, and, you know, that's you can kind of see how that could happen down there, that if you've got very limited stimulation, and this was obviously probably the days pre-internet and, and pre-videos and, and Netflix. I mean, we could get Netflix to work down there in a, in a slow buffering kind of way. Um, but, yeah, if you only had books and someone ruined the ending, you're like, eh, yeah, I could, uh, I could see that. And, yeah. yeah, but thankfully, in in a year and a half, we never had anyone come to blows or anything like that. Which, um, you know, in human nature, after that long as an isolated community, you'd almost go like, oh yeah, at some point that might happen, and and certainly came close a couple of times. But cooler heads prevailed, and, and saw some really, um, really good examples of of um, mature behaviour of people being able to back down and go, you know what, not worth it. I'm gonna. Mm walk away from this situation and you'll cool down later and they'll work it out so alcohol we saw yep. in the news recently there's going to be a ban on home brewing in antarctica and a limit of 10 standard drinks per person per week yep. this is a bit of a shift as i understand it having spoken to some old expeditioners through research and social things the yep. the craft beer brewing in antarctica at the australian stations in particular is something that people look on very fondly um, and have a lot of pride in. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take? I mean, I also know like that alcohol is a problem in Antarctica and, and especially um, there's a book called Big Dead Place written mm. by a guy about his experiences that in the American bases and 
the sort of rampant alcoholism that him, he and others engaged in yep. um, as part of the experience. I guess when you're cold and you're in Antarctica, uh, you know, fair enough. But yeah, what's what's the story with with that? And I don't know, what would be your perspective on it? Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. I mean, you're right. The, the home brewing on the Australian stations, which I think we were some of the last stations or the stations that took the most seriously, um, it had a huge community aspect to it. I, I loved mm. brew nights. We do it probably once a fortnight or, or every now and then. And then for Oktoberfest, we all brewed our own. It was about half a dozen of us or so that then brewed our own beer. And one guy who the guy who went on to win did a great job. And he 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 put it in the, the drying room annex, which was slightly warmer. And he was in there like boiling the hops and and we done all that stuff. And and it's a shame that we'll lose that community side of it. Um, but the decision behind that was was really around that homebrew is unregulated the alcohol control or content was we're pretty good at it by the end but you know it was anywhere between four and six odd percent so you never really knew how strong the beer you were drinking was and if you left it too long with too much sugar of course it starts to get out of hand um and then it didn't match the australian government health advice so what they've gone with now is a policy of you can take down an allocated amount that matches the guidance from uh, the Department of Health or whatever about how alcohol consumption and that's what you've got and then the station leader will control access to special event alcohol which was um, we had a pretty good selection for which was event appropriate so you know rum for gunfire breakfast on Anzac Day and champagne for New Year's and then some like really good red wines and stuff for midwinter so that'll all stay as far as I understand and and that and there was also a big drive towards industrial safety and, and everything down there as well so it's really just realigning it to Australian standards but the the big loss is that community homebrew side of things which um yeah it's just a sign of the times unfortunately but I was just glad I got to go down when it was still there and, and did enjoy I, I reckon I probably enjoyed making it more than drinking the homebrew sometimes it was all right but we always found it if you had even like one or two homebrews after dinner it, it seemed to cause sleep problems we, we never really knew why but um, I always felt you just never slept properly on the home. And there was rumours that, so our water down there, we run it at Davis, is desalinated seawater. And then it has to get remineralized before you consume it and everything. And then there was, you start to get, when you get really into the weeds of homebrew, you start to worry about your water and what's in it. And that was, you know, one of the theories there was that's why our homebrew causes sleep deprivation because like if you, it's stripping your minerals out of you and blah, 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 blah. So oh. anyway, all those topics will be, Null and void now when you've got, yeah, limited alcohol supply and that's that comes out of a registered brewery and they know what they're doing. <laughs> on that human side as well, I had a question around dating in Antarctica on the bases. Yeah. Um, and I think this actually comes from a lot of people at the moment in lockdown in Sydney are starting to look at their housemates in a different way. <laughs> and they're wondering, they're wondering whether it's worth it or <laughs> whether it's a terrible idea. So what's yep. your take on that? Is it when you're stuck with someone for a long period of time and you can't get away from them, do you, do you date? Do you not date? Does dating look different in Antarctica? That's a good question. Look, I reckon that probably sums it right up. If it's, it's looking at your flatmate and going like, well, is it worth it? Because if, it, <laughs> if it's not and it doesn't go well, you've then got to live with them for the rest of however long you're locked down or you're living there or you're, you're stuck in Antarctica. So we, um, we actually had a married couple in the wintering team, which was great. And they were really, half the time you couldn't even really tell they were married. Um, they were really discreet about it. They had a shared room and stuff, but uh, mm -hmm. and they'd go on field trips as a, as a duo. But 
other than that, they were pretty low key and uh, other and not really, um, not really a problem in terms of relationships on on station throughout the winter. Summer was a bit more exciting. We had you know, nearly a hundred expeditioners and a much higher turnaround. So some expeditioners would come down for a couple of weeks and they'd fly in, fly out, and off they'd go to a different station. And and there was a few expeditions that came down right at the end just for a couple of weeks and and then some some of the end of season parties in Australia Day and field trips and things. It it, it all had a bit more of a um a interesting dynamic and social thing. But as the station leader, I was kind of removed from all of that. And I'd, I'd find out a few about things after the fact and always, you know, be, oh, okay, didn't, didn't know that. Or mm. I think a, a couple of times when I saw, because my office had some overflow accommodation and then there was some interesting kind of people skirting past my office in the a direction that, you know, would indicate where they'd stayed the night. That they were, and I knew exactly where everyone's rooms were. So I'm like, oh, I didn't know they were staying in that room. But anyway... <laughs> Well, because of course the other great analogue for living on a on a moon base is The Bachelor, which is currently yeah. on Australian TV. So, uh, yeah. yeah, get a bunch of people and stick them in a house together, and then watch to see what happens. Um, so, was it a bit like was it a bit like that in that sense? Like, were people more or less? How do I put this in a way that no, the kids don't listen to this podcast? Were people more uh, or less monogamously driven? Um, um, Oh, look, when you're a, in Antarctica. The, uh, look, the average age was in the, the low 30s. Right. Everyone was quite socially mature. I think if you had a younger crowd, uh, it'd be a bit different, but it was it was quite benign. And look, that's just my my year. Other years might be crazy. And there's all sorts of anecdotes and stories of other years where things really, really get interesting with um, different relationship dynamics and stuff on station. Ours was pretty, pretty calm. Um mm-hmm. But I've been in lockdown, so that's my excuse. But I have been watching The Bachelor, and I reckon oh, one, one point on that, that half the, I feel like half the girls forget that it's not about the twenty girls in the house trying to be friends. You're all there to like win Jimmy and and get time with Jimmy. So hating on the others for getting time with Jimmy, I'm like, ah, oh, that's the point. What you can't be like, oh, I can't believe she's talking to Jimmy again. You're like, yeah, that's the point of the show. Talk to yeah. Jimmy win Jimmy um anyway so that but look it's a tv show and yeah. yeah yeah eyes on the prize though I agree what do you think of Jimmy he seems all right I oh, like he's got a good amount of skills so like, he's a pilot he's got a he knows boats he can paddleboard and so I can yeah he's got the motorbike I was pretty impressed yeah. with his technical capability I've got to say yeah I reckon I'd be mates with Jimmy he seems seems like a good lad <laughs> I do, do, I do like the skepticism and, and stereotypes around him being a pilot, though. I think yeah. that's probably a bit unfair to, to stereotype that all oh, pilots they're they're cheaters and all this sort of stuff. You're like, yeah, give him a give him a go. I'm sure there's there's plenty of you know boring businessmen that are cheaters as well. So don't um, don't stereotype pilots just because he's oh, he's a pilot. Yeah, I, I think we're at the, the end of the season. We're trying to come up with something to keep the episodes rolling. Um, yep. And then, you know, we, we've got to hold out for the for the love story we've been promised, which yeah, yeah which is maybe pretty accurate as to human nature. Um, so to take us back to more like wholesome things, penguins. Yep. Yeah. Are you a fan having lived among them? What do you reckon? Are they as cute as we think they are? They are phenomenally cute. I, I love penguins. <laughs> um, if, if at any point I was kind of 
grumpy or frustrated or anything like that. Just just watching penguins waddle around and fall over. They are so they're as bad on land as we are at swimming. Like they'd laugh at us because they are graceful and phenomenal in the water, but on land they're useless. And you you look at them, and even now my background and, and stuff looking at it, like there's just I they always bring a smile to my face. And, and there's so many different types. And when we'd go out some days, you you might be out um, driving around trying to count seals or, or change cameras uh, at some of the time-lapse camera sites or anything like that. But if you ever saw like emperor penguin tracks, you'd then start to try and like, Ooh, now we can, you're, you're kind of on the hunt for penguins and, and trying to find them. And, and we keep our distance when you do, but it's always fascinating to be like, Ooh, well, there's been, pen- there's been emperors around here and trying to look out for them and then watch them. And they're, they're huge, you know, they're a meter tall and, and they, they're quite loud and, They've got no land predators. So I find that's great. There's, there's these safety distances of, oh, you, you can't approach penguins closer than this, this X amount or whatever. But if you sit still, they'll, they'll come to you and you never have a, a problem trying to get them to kind of come and say hello, which is, which is great. And yeah, love penguins. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, that was when I put out the call, most, most people wanted to know about the penguins. So um, yeah. I think that's, that's pretty cool. And not all Antarctic bases have access to penguins as well. Like most of the ones on inland, um, uh, they just lack penguins. Correct. Yeah. So on the coast, there's penguins everywhere. Um, all sorts of times. But even then, so our main intercontinental runway, which is uh, near Casey Station and well, I don't know the top of my head. It's either 30 or 60 Ks inland, but considerable amount of distance inland. I think it might be closer to 60. Um, they've had penguins there that have cool. wandered that far up the Antarctic plateau and then just ended up at the Wilkins runway. Now, I don't think the fate of those penguins is going to be good, but they are a very curious little animal. And you could be, for us at Davis, you know, a number of Ks inland on in the middle of rocks and nowhere near the ocean and, and often not anywhere near a a body of water and you'd see you'd sort of see movement or you're just walking along and you hear like Rack! and you're like oh wow there's a can you a make that noise there. again for us <laughs> yeah. no way of checking if that's accurate but oh, that's it's pretty great. accurate yeah well you get pretty good at penguin noise we had one guy on station who was really good at it, did it all the time <laughs> uh, we've got a question from um uh, a friend of mine who's a going into space medicine that's her area and she's asked about um, what sort of medical procedures you tend to see on base and also medications taken and I understand you can't give details because that's sort of personal but um, one thing I was just thinking about was I recently um, got a blood test and my doctor was like hey you're highly deficient in vitamin d and I was like oh no kidding I've been inside for the last 18 months (laughs) um so, so I've, I've recently started taking vitamin D supplements for the first time in my life, which has been a very, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing where you're like, oh, there you go. That's the thing that I didn't think that I would do. Um, but yeah, I imagine vitamin D is something that is, is a, a thing that people tend to lack in Antarctica, but what else goes on medically? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, and, and funnily enough, I was saying to someone about this the other day that actually the way body your body produces vitamin D via sunlight is actually it metabolizes vitamin A or something. So sometimes you actually need to take vitamin A to produce vitamin D to increase levels. Ah. So we, and then, so certainly our vitamin D levels were tracked by the doctor and polar medicine um, along the way at, at times as well. And most of us, if not all, were on some level of vitamin D supplementation and then you you try and eat vitamin D rich foods or suggested foods and 
and everything like that or get some sunlight where you could and then there was rumors that like oh, actually your body can't photosynthesize the vitamin d if it's below zero and you're like well what and then there's no ozone layer down there so you go outside to try and get some vitamin d and you get burnt within two minutes um <laughs> so that was you know yeah that's that's probably one of the common ones then there's all these little polar um they call it polar hands and then um you have a lot of nasal problems as well with the really dry air down there so you your skin dries out phenomenally um i myself had problems with that and as did a number of other expeditioners you, you find your nostrils and your skin and your hands and your, your your legs and all sorts of things have skin problems so then i switched to the kind of the wim hof cold shower model and you try and do that to help deal with your dry skin and you know, maybe that helped maybe it didn't so you, you have a lot of those weird self-experiments to try and deal with your, your common problems um otherwise the the main issues and main injuries on station are probably just akin to what would happen in daily life over a, a year or so you know, a couple of um stitches from like bumped heads and, and different cuts and abrasions on different ha like hands and, and those sorts of things and I, thankfully I, over the year and a half didn't have any broken bones or, or anything like that and the, the doctor did a great job and he's very multi-skilled and had a great background in kind of bush medicine so he, he had all sorts of stories and, and i'm sure would have been able to handle uh anything that we had and i mean the, the great story is that another russian story of a guy having to take his own appendix out so yeah uh, I, I, I get that question a bit so only the doctor has their appendix removed um in the australian program these days the rest of us uh go down there with with an appendix if you've still got one and, and if it's got if it has problems the doctor will you know deal with it so he's very clear with uh he's like if you have any sort of abdominal pain or upset stomach or anything like that that you think could be heading that way go and see him don't try and deal with it for a few days and then go oh i've had this pain in the stomach for a week mm. yeah, so hmm. what sort of testing do you have access to down there in terms of like if you get bloods done or something can you run them on base uh, I don't think he could do, I think with the vitamin D tests, they had, we did them at the end of summer and they send them back to be tested, but I'm certainly oh, not, yeah. not a doctor. Um, yeah. Did have a pretty good medical facility down there. So probably can do some pathology and, and everything, but maybe not to the same level. That you yeah. And then they've got some really good telehealth um, facilities, everything down there as well. So that in the event you've got to do brain surgery, you know, obviously there's not a brain surgeon, but we've got a general surgeon on station and then he can chat to a brain surgeon remotely via video link and potentially put your brain back together and, you know, fix you up. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting one. Um, one of my friends has actually just gone up to Tennant Creek as a doctor and she met another doctor at Tennant Creek. Who's going to be heading to Antarctica in the next season as the, one of the station's doctors. Oh, so um, yeah. So maybe that's what they go for that that experience working in a place that is pretty remote sees a lot of pretty intense stuff mm. and um, you know you don't have a whole lot of fancy hospital options open to you so you have to develop that experience and I guess it would be hard to develop that experience anywhere else um, but that would be interesting hearing that your doctor also had that kind of background um, I wonder yeah so B, if you're listening Maybe yeah. consider doing that. And I think the doctor, the doctor on station has a really tough role as well. Cause you know, as the station leader, you know, it's, it's a weird leadership dynamic to live and work with your team. But essentially for me as the, as the station leader, if people didn't like me or didn't really want to talk to me, it actually wasn't, you know, at, at times it's not great as a leader to have that, but you go, well, it's not actually the end of the world. If they don't like me, like bugger it. As long as they listen to me and do what they're told, like 
we'll, we'll get on with it. But for the doctor, he's got to live and work or she has to live and work with the team, but also keep access and everything as well. So I think that's another yeah. challenge that's, that's rare. It does happen in small rural communities for doctors, um, but it's, it's more apparent on an Antarctic station of like, oh, he had to walk a pretty, a pretty fine line between patient and um, friends and, and all that stuff. And then of course he, he, you could go in and see him and then talk about any range of medical issues, which I'm sure we had. And then he's got to go and, you know, have lunch next to you afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you've got that strange and that's, you know, that, that goes for every job and every person on station as well, but more so I think for the, the doctor and the station leader have that strange, uh, strange situation. Final question for you, and then I've, yep. we've got to get to the 11 a.m. press conference, which has become the, the guiding light of my day. Ooh. David, um, what's next for you? If if you got a call from someone, you know, maybe someone listening to the podcast who has such powers, who said, hey, do you want to lead a, a, lead a, a base on the moon down the track? Or, or you know, if you got any sort of call, um, yeah, what's next for you? What are you looking to do? Would you want to go to space? I would love to go to space. Right. I, I'm too tall. I think I'm six foot three. So that's probably counts me out of most of the current space programs. But um, I, I, would, I would absolutely love to, to work with a, a team or anyone that was looking at long-term space ex exploration and how to run a, a moon base or a station or any, any of those sorts of strange social experiments and oh, I have some good thoughts and, and background and like I said I'd, I'd love to just sit in a room with a bunch of psychologists who are studying those things and there'd yeah. be some fascinating insights uh, for that otherwise I'm, I'm look really taking some time to to get my life back back on track here in Melbourne renovating my house and doing a bit of public speaking and then looking at professional opportunities um, in the future to to move either into the consulting side of things with leadership and management training and coaching or uh, back to government work or, you know, future Antarctic work and you know, maybe go to Antarctic tourism or anything. Else. So I'm kind of open to a lot of things. If anyone out there is interested in my resume, just give us a buzz. And um, Yeah. Look, maybe Osha Gunsberg is going to give you a call. <laughs> yeah. I'd, uh, my sister is onto, she's going to listen to this. She is onto me about being the bachelor. I'm, I'm very, very, very set on not doing that. Um, yeah. Uh, you anyway, say that yeah. now. Anyway, yeah. all right. Well, if you're listening and you've got some ideas or you can um, hook David up with the Bachelor casting team, do get in contact. But also, um, I know there's a few people looking at doing some analogues to do with, yeah, chucking people in weird locations and then watching to see what happens. So that might also be of interest. Um, we've heard it here. David is keen to be studied. So... Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm sure that you'll get you'll get lots of opportunities, but this has been such a delight. Thank you so much for making time to chat. And I hope that your day 13 test comes back the way you want it to come back and that you can continue to go about your, your life back um, in warmer climates. Hopefully. No, thanks very much for having me on. And um, yeah, all the best for the lockdown up there in Sydney and for, for your listeners who are getting through the lockdown. Just, just imagine what it's going to be like looking back is one of the best ways to get through uh, a lockdown or a challenge like that. Brilliant. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. You can find David's cute photos of penguins on Instagram at button underscore film. And as always, you can follow me on Annie Handmer on all the socials.